If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians, uh, in your Bible, Philippians chapter 3, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. If you don't have yours, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Philippians 3 and verse 1. Uh, tonight we'll look through verses 1 through 6 and kind of prepare ourselves. We discussed last week the transition that occurs at chapter 3, that it's similar to chapters 1 and 2 in the overall structure, that is that there is teaching and application, but now it is much more emphatic. Chapter 1, amidst the doctrine and teaching, taught us the application of right living which is so important that we understand how we are to live our lives. And then chapter 2 ramped up from there, and the doctrine went up exponentially as it talked about the reality of the two natures of Christ, fully God and fully man, fully submissive to his Father and obedient to all that would be brought upon him, and that a reflection of our obedience from that pivotal verse in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, to that we are to consider others more highly than ourselves. So we went from right living in chapter 1 to obedient living. It's good to know what's right, and that's what chapter 1 taught us, kind of a head knowledge. Chapter 2 took it to an obedience level, a heart level. How are we going to do it? And now in chapter 3, it ramps up again, and we take it to a yet further level as we consider the reality of life. What does this look like? And how do we understand it? How do we put into practice this obedient living, this right living that we've learned, obedient living which we've heard of, and now that we would get the boots on application of the reality of life. And this is where our title comes from for our message. This is the second part of that, of that message. We started last week. And we've titled this the religious dichotomy in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. The religious dichotomy. A dichotomy is two ways that are completely divergent from one another. They're the same general underpinning or foundation, but they show a completely different track or path which is to be pursued. And that's what our text shows us, only it is a religious dichotomy. It's a spiritual dichotomy. It is two paths, spiritually speaking, that can be followed, but one that is clearly right and one that is clearly wrong. I mentioned also last week that this entire section goes down through verse 11. So we're just kind of dealing with the first half, and then we'll dive in, uh, Lord willing, next time to the second half. So let me read our text and then make a few comments. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I have counted all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith. In Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The religious dichotomy. Last week, we looked at our first point, which was the encouragement in verse 1a. We titled that first point, the encouragement. And that encouragement is the command to rejoice. And we talked about how rejoicing is a great encouragement. When you rejoice, you understand that God is in control of all things. This is not happiness, necessarily, but it is a resolute, confident affirmation of God's work in our lives. And a peace and a joy that comes with that. Again, not always happiness, but that we are at all times to be rejoicing. And hence the command, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. The finally showing us the transition. And then he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And there we made a transition, right in the middle of the verse. Our first point, the encouragement, was that rejoicing. The second point was the warning that began in the middle of verse 1. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So as we looked at our second point, the warning, Paul is reminding us, and that's what he's saying, that it's no trouble for me to write the same thing. He's reminding us of what he wrote back in chapter 1 and verse 27 to 30. There was a warning there. And now he's repeating the warning in more emphatic and more pronounced verbiage. And he says that this is a safeguard for us. And that safeguard is to beware of these three groups. To beware of the dogs, to beware of the evil workers, and to beware of the false circumcision. We talked about how dogs are not speaking about physical dogs, but that it is a description. The dogs of that day and age were a ravenous pack. They were those that were mangy, that traveled around, that would come around and actually take down smaller animals and were totally out of control. That these people reflected dogs in their wickedness, in their total abandon and lack of care for standard common human decency. And these are these individuals who are attacking. They are the evil workers, the ones who are doing the deeds of Satan. We make no mistake that when we see the darkness going on in our world today, that it is motivated by the enemy of our Father. 
Scripture tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the forces of this dark world age. Satan is alive and well, and he is doing everything he can to continue to tear apart the work of the Father, to continue to tear apart the family, and to continue to tear apart the church, and even to continue to seek to tear apart society in horrific attacks like massive shootings at schools, like killing of a police officer after a murder of his own wife deplorable, wicked acts, and these are those of the false circumcision. The wicked Judaizers are who are being referenced in that phrase. Those who are seeking to draw those away from the church back to the Jewish world. We talked about how that is no different than the world in which we live. When we look at the world around us, they are seeking to pull us apart from Christ. They are seeking to tell us how everything going on in the world, which is contrary to God and His Word, is that which we should accept. And that we should rest in all of these abnormalities. Because they are absolutely aberrant and wrong. So this was the warning that he brought. So as we think of this, we see already the religious dichotomy. We, saw, we see already an encouragement, a right way and a wonderful way, and, and that which is rejoicing in God and His work, rejoicing in the Lord. And then we see the warning. We see those who are tearing apart. So we're seeing already these two different paths with the encouragement and the warning and this dichotomy clearly stated. So with that, we come to our third point tonight, which is the reality. The reality. The dichotomy between encouragement and warning was clear, and it's also clear in the two perspectives of the reality in verses 3 to 6. Verse 3 conveys the positive side of that reality, where it says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This first part of verse 3 reflects the positive part of the dichotomy. That is, that our confidence or our boasting is in Christ. Those of us who are the true circumcision. Now, some versions don't have the word true. And we notice in our New American Standard Bibles, it's italicized to tell us that it's added for emphasis. So the question becomes, why did they add the word true? Well, they added it because what's happening here is he's making a contrast. If we went back to the end of verse 2, we see the word false circumcision, the last phrase at the end of verse 2. Now at the beginning of verse 3, we have the true circumcision. And so this contrast, this dichotomy is being painted for us, these two different ways. And he's saying, we are of the true circumcision. Well, we alluded last week to this idea even as it related to the word false circumcision in verse 2. Because that word false circumcision, is often translated as mutilation. And the King James Version actually translated as concision, concision versus circumcision. So there are two terms. There's a wrong type of cutting, which is concision, 
everything that is forbidden in the scripture in Leviticus. And then there is circumcision, which is that religious element, that effort which is made on behalf of God. And notice Paul when he says the true circumcision is bringing something out that we might not pick up. He's not talking here about physical circumcision. Because that word true would be potentially an, an odd way to mention this spiritual comp- or this physical component. But it is perfectly fitting to talk about a spiritual element. He's referencing uh, a circumcision that is, that is of the heart. A circumcision that is of the heart. In fact, we see that in one of Paul's other letters in 1 Corinthians chap- chapter 7 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 17 says... Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in a manner, let him walk. That is, as God calls us, let us live, let us walk. And so I direct in all the churches, he goes on in verse 17 and in verse 18, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. We're not talking about a physical act of circumcision. Rather, it is something spiritual that's being brought forward. We've seen this same word used twice back in chapter 2 of Philippians. If you look back at verse 25 of Philippians chapter 2. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also a messenger and minister of my need. Epaphroditus is one who was a minister along with Paul. Another text that carries forward this idea, this right idea of spiritual circumcision is in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. Romans 2.28 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. God is looking for us to have a circumcised heart, a humble heart, a contrite heart. And this is the picture that's being paralleled for us here in this dichotomy of the false circumcision and we who are of the true circumcision. If we look back, and in fact, circumcision first occurs in the Bible in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 11. Dr. MacArthur in his study Bible does an excellent job in Genesis 17, 11 explaining the components of that, and I'd refer you to that for further study. But the true circumcision is further defined in verse 3 by those who worship in the Spirit of God. There are several New Testament words for worship. But it's interesting that this one that Paul uses is one of the least common 
and it's also only used by Paul. It was one of those words we saw also in Philippians 2.25. Epaphroditus, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. So here, the very same word minister is translated as worship. Look at one other reference in verse 30 of chapter 2, Philippians 2 and 30. But he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete which was deficient in your service to me. This word that he uses for worship relates to service. It relates to ministry. It is the action of worship. It is carrying forth in other people Proclaiming the truth of God and His work in worship that is service. And that worship is done in the Spirit of God. Very important for us to understand this idea of of worship or serving as a minister. And the worship is to be done in the Spirit of God. Now, some contend that this should be spirit with a small s. I think if you look in most of your Bibles there in verse 3, that the Spirit is a capital S. And, and some want to make a, a fairly significant point about this. I don't think there's any reason to do so. We are worshiping in the Spirit of God. Worship, as we've just defined, is an act of ministry. It is an act of service. Well, Romans 8.16 tells us exactly how we perform these types of services and it shows us the parallel of a capital s being the holy spirit or a small s being our spirit listen to romans 8 16 for if i preach the gospel i have nothing to boast of for i am under compulsion for woe is me if i do not preach the gospel and that is an excellent verse but that is not the verse i am looking for I love it when that happens. The verse that I'm looking for says that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So that the works that we do in our spirit are those which are molded and shaped and associated with the Holy Spirit of God. So whether we put a big S or a small S here makes no difference. The only worship that we can do which is ministry and which is service is that which is motivated by the Spirit of God. So be it small or large, both, or small or capital, both, I believe, are accurate. Well, not only are we the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, but next we also glory in Christ Jesus. The true circumcision worships in the Spirit of God, and they glory in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that a unique verb? glory we know what glory is but usually we see it as a noun and we're talking about the glory of god but here this is a verb how does one glory what does that look like this verb translated initially we wonder is this act of glorifying or not glorifying, is it glorying? Is this act of glorying, is it our loud vocal proclamation? Is it our singing? What is it that shows that? Is it the way that we minister? Is it a further connotation of this worship and service? Well, we understand when we look at the unique way 
that this word is translated and the way that it is normally translated. You see, this Greek word is normally translated as boasting. 30 out of 36 times in the New Testament, this same word is translated as boasting. Now, we know boasting is usually not something that is a spiritually positive situation. So that's why our translators have used the verb glory. So that's what it means. We are boasting, if you will, in a God-honoring way, but we are boasting, we are glorying in Christ Jesus. He is our boast. We have nothing to boast of in and of ourselves. What am I in my flesh? I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. I'm separated from His holiness and His righteousness. But in Christ Jesus, we can glory in that. We can boast in what Christ has done in us. Amen? That we realize that we are saved, that we are seen as righteous in Christ's righteous actions that his righteousness has been imputed to us as believers and he has taken on our sin that alien righteousness which belongs to christ alone has been given to us so that we are seen the moment that we are saved justified in the white garments in the white robes of christ even though we are as yet sinners that is something to glory about We glory about the fact that as believers, we have eternal life that is given to us. And we look forward with such joy to that. As I had the privilege uh, of doing Miss Walker's funeral, and as I have talked with Miss Dot and her encouragement about being home with the Lord, that is glorying in Christ. She's excited about all that she will see when she stands before Jesus. She's excited to be reunited with Wayne after almost 20 years since he passed. She's excited to be with her daughter. And although she doubtlessly loves all of those that are on this earth, she has a joy and an excitement about that which lies ahead. This is what it means, beloved, to glory in Christ Jesus. So those of the true circumcision worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. That almost is self-evident. Because both of the previous things, the worshiping that we are to do, is in the Spirit of God. The glorying is in Christ Jesus. Those are completely spiritual, completely... other to our flesh there's nothing for us to boast about in this flesh there's no confidence that i can make in my flesh am i to say oh you know lord i'm i'm glad that i'm tall well who made me tall i'm i'm glad lord that you made me able to study and think and read well who gave me a brain I'm glad, Lord, that you placed me in in a wonderful place and that I'm blessed to live in this land. Who Who has done everything? What do we have? Paul makes an incredible statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as he talks about this, as he's kind of bringing a rebuke to the church at Corinth as as they are really acting so superior in so many ways. 
In verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4, he says, Now these things, brother, I, am fig- I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. No one will have confidence in his flesh and in his superiority over another person's flesh. He goes on in verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast if you had not received it? And then he goes on in this ironic statement to talk about you're already feel filled, you're already kings, you're already mighty. They're already counting themselves as so superior in the flesh. Superior to other people. By the way, this whole thought process of confidence in the flesh and personal superiority, it's absolutely opposite of what Paul has just taught us in Philippians 2.3. To consider others more highly than yourself. Ask yourself when we see all of the tragedies around us, so many horrific fights and individual problems in marriages and in lives and in our world, if that one principle were applied, what would happen? What would happen if we would consider others more highly than ourselves? I'd propose to you that our entire world would be different. So we are to put no confidence in the flesh. Well, as we see these positive perspectives of worship, of glory, of having no confidence in our own flesh. All of these, of course, are spiritual components that mean we must be relying on Christ. We must be living as if Christ is our all. Well, now he shows us, as we saw, a dichotomy between first part of verse 1 and verse 1b and 2. Now we see a dichotomy again that begins in verse uh, verse 5. Philippians, or verse 4. Philippians verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Okay, we're talking, and our title is the religious dichotomy. It's a spiritual comparison. So Paul says, if we're going to have a spiritual confidence in, in our flesh, I'm the one that ought to have the confidence. Not only am I the one that have the confidence, I ought to have it Far more. Same word for confidence we saw back at the end of verse 3. And now Paul is saying, if I have confidence in my flesh and in my body and the way I live my life, it ought to be more than anyone else. And then he goes on and tells us why in verses 5 and 6. He's circumcised the eighth day. His life began with a spiritual high point. He began at eight days old with a life of obedience to the law and to the Lord as he was circumcised on this eighth day. And not only that, he is of the nation of Israel. He is of the descendant of Abraham. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Jacob who God named Israel and the 12 tribes. Paul is of this nation. So from a spiritual point of view, I've got a beginning of my life 
from circumcision and a lineage from which I was born that shows that I have a religious pedagogy. I am the one who has something that I can boast in and have confidence in. But not just that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Why was that a big deal? There were 12, 10, 12 tribes, I'll take my shoes off to get those other two toes up there, 12 tribes of Israel, the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. My professor from North Carolina used to talk about those 10 ungodly northern counties and countries and states and then those two godly southern states. And uh, I used to just get such a charge of that, out of that and I do even more thinking of him now. But there were two tribes that at least initially remained faithful to God, and they were Judah and Benjamin. So he is of one of those two that remained more faithful. There's another, another little flower, another little feather in his cap that he is circumcised in the, from the nation of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. What that is telling us is that he lived a life of religiosity towards the Hebrew faith. He lived in a pagan culture. We know that Paul was from Tarsus, which was a city in the Roman Empire. But amidst that, he lived as a fastidious Jew. He went to Hebrew school. His family spoke Hebrew. And he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He rose above. They did everything they could in the pagan society they were to cling to this religious endeavor. As to the law of Pharisee, the highest regard and the highest level of religious study which could be followed in the nation of Israel was that of a Pharisee. You had to, if you were going to pursue this, you had to dedicate your life to this understanding of God's Word in the Old Testament. You had to memorize a majority of the Old Testament. The law needed to be memorized. Most of the prophetic psalms needed to be memorized, which is why it's so amazing that in Psalm 22, the Pharisees repeat the very words that proved that Jesus is Messiah as they cried out to him on the cross, if you are the Son of God, come down from there. For David prophesied those very words a thousand years before Christ's crucifixion. So he was all of these things. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The highest, uh, the highest virtue within the Hebrew world was the virtue of zeal. Because zeal was a combination of love and hate. It was, as Dr. MacArthur notes, it was a love for the things of Judaism and it was a hate for everything that was not of Judaism. And that's confirmed in our text because it says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And Paul was. In fact, when he was saved, he was on his way to Damascus to continue to persecute those of the way. Of the church. So here, another feather in his cap of his confidence in his flesh. And as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. From a fleshly point of view, spiritually minded, Paul had it all. Everything was in line with him. He was the most 
religious man possible. But what does he just tell us? That we must put no confidence in the flesh. Even though he had all of these things, they were of no value to him. This was a dichotomy. One way was the way of righteousness in God, worship in the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus, and no confidence in the flesh. The contrary was that we can stack up all of these different levels. Paul confirms in verse 7, which we'll tear into next week, it becomes a transition verse, where he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All of those religious elements, he realized they were nothing. They were loss. They were wasted time. Beloved, it brings us to ask ourselves the very question, what are we clinging to that is religiosity and not relationship with Christ. Our religion is nothing. There is no religion that is going to save anyone, only those with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we need to assess everything in our own lives and make sure that these are the things that are lining up with what has been proclaimed as the right path in this dichotomy that we are worshiping, that we are act, actively engaged through the Spirit of God, obedient to the commands of the Word, that we are glorying in Christ Jesus, that we are proclaiming Him and His excellencies everywhere, and that we are putting no confidence in our flesh. It brings us to ask ourselves, how thorough is our relationship with Christ? You know, there was uh, an old pastor that I knew who said, you know, I can tell you what a person's true level of trust and confidence in Jesus Christ is. And everybody kind of, you know, cut an ear and said, what is it, pastor, that you think you know that can tell us what our trust and confidence in Christ is? He said, you let me look at your checkbook and you let me look at your daytimer. This was quite a while back. He said, you let me look at your checkbook and you let me look at your daytimer, your calendar, and I will tell you how much trust that person has put in Christ. Beloved, we each need to consider where we are in our relationship with our Savior and make sure that we too are putting no confidence in the flesh and trusting only in our glorious Savior who has died to give us life who has shown us a perfect plan in his word and who desires that we grow away from our sin and our confidence and we trust more in the almighty God who has done everything for us.